Hello, and welcome to another edition of Diffusion, the only science show you'll ever need. I'm David Harcourt, and with me in the studio this week are Mark West, who's going to tell us about his own experiences of vacuum cupping, Jackie Hayes, who's bringing us a report on women in science, but before that, Jackie Pfeffer has the science news for us. New findings from the University of Iowa present hope for fighting addictions. Antoine Bruchera from the University of Iowa has found that strokes, which affect a certain area of the brain, can stop their sufferers' cigarette addictions. In a report at newsatnature.com, Bashera has found 14 different patients who not only completely quit smoking after a stroke caused damage to their insular cortex, but lost all interest in the habit. Even when the stroke sufferers were being subjected to triggers, such as someone smoking in front of them, old cravings weren't ignited. The insular cortex is responsible for providing emotional responses and important decision-making. Damage to this area has also shown an impact on the impulsive decision-making processes. With the impulsive decision-making impaired, smokers have a much bigger chance of quitting as their reflective systems, which are responsible for long-term decisions, help in a rational process of giving up. The next step is finding the exact point in the insular cortex which has caused the stroke sufferers to quit, and whether it can be suppressed or not to help overcome cravings and addictions. Lee Hoshberg from the Massachusetts General Hospital and John Donahue from the Brown University have created a sensor which is restoring hope to those with no mobility, according to Scientific America Online. The sensor, developed by Hoshberg and Donahue, was placed onto the area of the brain controlling movement of paraplegic Matthew Nagel. The sensor was able to convert neuron signals to actions on a computer screen via tiny electrodes which were connected to a base on Nagel's head, which was in turn connected to computers and processing and monitoring equipment. Nagel, whose spine was severed in 2001 after sustaining a knife wound, has so far been able to check email, control his TV and even play Pong after 57 sessions. The trial has shown that the neurons in the brain send the same firing patterns whether attempting or intending to create movement. And while similar tests have been achieved with monkeys, Donahue and Horschberg's sensor is the first to have shown results for humans. While at the moment Nagel's thoughts can only be converted into actions on a computer screen, the inventors still have a lot of work ahead of them and hope that one day it will lead to creating movement again for mobility sufferers. And it seems that now even retouching and airbrushing won't be able to conceal your age in photographs. According to ABC Science Online, a researcher at Eastman Kodak has been identifying techniques and applications for software that can reveal a person's age using red-eye-reducing software already found in digital cameras. The software, which can currently identify a pair of eyes as belonging to either a baby, child, teen or adult, works by factoring in how well a person's eye responds to light and how far apart their eyes are from one another. At birth, our eyes are the same size that will carry us through to adulthood. While they don't grow in size, the distance between the pair does. Furthermore, as we age, the muscles in the eyes begin to weaken, reducing their ability to dilate in changing light at a constant rate. The software developed by Andrew Gallagher can estimate the age of a person in a photograph by measuring the distance between their eyes and by looking at their red eye and how much dilation has occurred. Gallagher is now hoping to combine telltale signs of, signs of ageing 
from the eyes with other features such as hair and wrinkles to refine the estimation. Thanks, Jackie. You're listening to Diffusion. Now, Mark turned up this week with some very strange-looking marks on his neck, and we'd like to know where he got them. Mark. Thanks, David. This week, I've taken uh, medical science into my own hands and given vacuum cupping a road test. Vacuum cupping is a form of traditional Chinese medicine and is a way of applying acupressure to the skin. A vacuum is created next to the surface of the skin in a plastic or glass cup, which is held to the skin by the vacuum. Sometimes this is called fire cupping, as a fire will often be lit next to or inside the cup, which causes the air inside the cup to heat up. The cup is then placed upon the skin, where as it cools, the air inside contracts and causes the cup to stick to the skin. In the version of vacuum cupping that I had, modern technology had caught up with traditional Chinese medicine, and the air was simply extracted from the cup with a pump. Cupping is used in the treatment of respiratory diseases such as the common cold, pneumonia and bronchitis. Cupping is also used to treat back, neck and shoulder pain. I used it in the hope that it could treat my ongoing shoulder and neck distress. This technique, in various forms, has been found in the traditional medicines of Vietnam, the Balkans and Greece. Suction cups placed at various acupuncture points on the body create a vacuum that apparently draws toxins and fluids to the surface of the skin and brings about relief by rebalancing yin, yang and qi. It is claimed that it also loosens adhesions and lifts connective tissue and and brings blood flow to the stagnant muscles and skin. There is no scientific consensus over whether such methods work beyond the effects of the placebo, so I thought I would try it out for myself. Acupressure has been shown to work in reducing nausea. This can be achieved through the use of an acupressure wristband. Massage has also been shown to provide some long-term benefit for lower back pain. So if it's good enough for Gwyneth Paltrow and the Australian swimming team, then it's good enough for me. The experience was an interesting one. The massages before and after the cupping were excellent and certainly made me feel relaxed. Indeed, I fell asleep. However, the cupping process itself was a little odd. My skin felt quite tingly as it was sucked into the cup and now, two days on, is quite bruised. Around 12 cups were placed on my back, from my lower back up to my neck. After the cupping was complete, I had 12 red circular marks on my back, with the lower two ones being quite dark red. This, I was told by the lady who ran the clinic, was because I had some lower back issues, and I did feel better after the process was complete, but I don't know whether it was due to the massage or the cupping. The lower back cups were also placed quite close to the liver, which I had given a fair working out at a party the night before, and this may explain why that part of me was a little bit tender. Most of the marks are fading now, except for the two highest ones on my neck. This has prompted people to think that I have some very strange-looking hickeys. It is perhaps not surprising that they have not faded, as my neck has given me many problems over the last six months. Perhaps the blood flow to that region is not very good, and so it's not clearing up as quickly as other sections of my back. But this is just my speculation, and I'm no medical scientist. So it would seem to me that the jury is still out on vacuum cupping. I would encourage everyone out there to give it a go and form their own opinions. That's what science about, lots of people doing the experiment. I found it pretty relaxing and pretty intriguing. Recent studies have found that acupressure can help reduce nausea and pressure points on the head can be massaged to reduce headache. Some of these studies suggest that applying pressure to certain points on the body causes the brain to release endorphins, small proteins that act as natural painkillers. For me, I really enjoyed the massage and might give it another go when the bruises fade. 
if you really want to see the effects of the vacuum cupping, I've put some photos up on the internet, so Google me or look for me on Flickr. That was Mark West. And if you want to see those pictures, you can get them at mrscience.blogspot.com. That's M-I-S-T-E-R science.blogspot.com. I done too much of some things And not enough of others Just like all life lovers I changed and changed and changed And changed from one thing to another I've had complicated dealings With complicated feelings And I've cut and bruised and torn I made blinds on the windows of my mind With the time that my back once wore I'm a single person in this universe And I am here to say to you One day that I die I'll just give a smile and fly into the blue Cause we're all just protons, neutrons, electrons I rest on a Sunday, work on a Monday And someday soon we'll be singing the old tunes Zippity-doo-da, zippity-doo It's winds and it's wealth And I feel undefeated But every day I see the girl With the strawberry curl And I'm too shy to meet her Some nights I go to bed There's a ghost in the air above my head And I tremble Sometimes I eat KFC Other times I give up meat And I just eat lentils Till the day that I'll be gone And the song won't last for long Cause we're all just Protons, neutrons, electrons They rest on a Sunday Work on a Monday And someday soon We'll be singing the old tunes Zippity-doo-da, zippity-doo I'll be sitting on the porch with you
just give a smile and fly into the blue Cause we're all just protons, neutrons, electrons that rest on a Sunday Work on a Monday, a Sunday soon We'll be singing the old tunes, zippity-doo-dah, zippity-doo I'll be sitting on the porch with you Then I'll call you and I'll call you That was Protons, Neutrons and Electrons by the Cat Empire. And you're listening to the Protons, Neutrons and Electrons that make up the diffusion team. Now, Jackie has something to say about the gender divide in science. Yes, David. In the last edition of Nature, published on the 13th of July, there is a letter discussing gender issues in science. Ben Bars is a female-to-male transgender professor at Stanford University, and he's refuted some claims that there are innate differences between men and women that are to blame for the failure of women to advance in science. Some of you might remember last year, there was a lot of controversy January last year or something, when uh, Larry Summers, who was the president of Harvard University at the time, presented some results at a conference where males had achieved more of the top scores than females within science. And he said at this conference that the difference was purely due to genetics. Men have more natural ability in maths and science than females. Um, At the time, it provoked a lot of controversy and a lot of women stood up and walked out. I tell you what, if I was there, I would have walked out too. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, Since since then, of course, uh, other prominent scientists have also supported this view. Uh, Steven Pinker? who was the author of the bestseller The Language Instinct and also a professor at Harvard University, he's put forward several similar sentiments. Um, so you might be wondering, well, what kind of evidence is there to suggest that men have better abilities than females? So there's one experiment that uh, is always quoted, and it's an experiment that was done on newborns, where newborn baby girls and boys are shown a picture of an object, like a mobile phone, and a a picture of a human face. And the amount of time that they spent looking at each of these pictures was recorded. And on average, baby girls spend more time looking at the picture of the face than baby boys... The baby boys actually spend more time looking at the picture of the object, like the mobile phone or the truck. This is meant to mean that, like, boys are more interested in things and that's why they go into engineering and that's why they achieve so much more. However, there are lots of experiments that I have dug up to suggest that there is no difference whatsoever in how interested male and female newborns are or that there's any difference in their mathematical ability. So, for example, between the ages of three and three and a half years is when children start recognising what the numbers actually are. So you identify what one is and what that means symbolically, like there's one thing in the picture, or there's two, or there's three. And um, some scientists looked at a group of children between three and three and a half years and how 
many numbers they could recognise, like whether they knew what two was and what that meant symbolically. And they actually found that girls were better than boys in this range um, at identifying what the different numbers were. There is another one which a lot of people have heard of where they take um, baby or children, males and females, and they record them doing something. So, for example, one of them is the child um, winding up a jack-in-the-box and then the jack-in-the-box springs up and the child, like, falls backwards. They show a bunch of people in the room this image of the child falling backwards from the the Mm jack-in-the-box. But they tell one group that the child is a male, for example, Andrew. And they tell another group watching exactly the same child doing exactly the same thing that it's Ruth or a female baby. And they ask them to record, like, what is the baby experiencing? So what's the different reactions that that you get depending on whether it's a boy or a girl? Well, the... Um, so, okay, in the cases where the baby's doing something unambiguous, like smiling, um, regardless of gender, the parents or the group watching will say, the baby is happy, it's smiling. In unambiguous ones like this jack-in-the-box, if it's male, they say the, the most common response was, he is angry. And if it's a female, the most common response was, she's scared. So there's a difference in how they perceive what the child is doing, despite the fact that it's exactly the same video, depending on um, what gender they are. So then you think, well, okay, these are children. Uh, By the way, like little children, you can't really tell the difference in gender, right? So So perhaps they're all dressed in blue or all in pink or something like that. Well, or maybe yellow. yellow. (laughs) Well, yeah, purple is a neutral colour. Well, so, if you tell people that these are boys or girls, they're not going to argue with you. Yeah, you true. You put the argument into their head and they will believe if you say that the child is named Andrew, then of course they're going to believe you. Yeah, that's true. Although it is psychologists doing it. Who trusts psychologists these days? Um, so, I once knew a boy named Sue. So. Um, so maybe you're asking, like, does this continue on past the age of toddlers when people can fully communicate what they're experiencing, etc.? Well, think about this then. Um, a whole bunch of similar CVs were sent to uh, professors of psychology, surprisingly enough, and the CVs were identical, but the name was changed from Ruth to Andrew or Andrew to Ruth. And again, in the cases where the CV was outstanding, like the candidate was the best possible Mm -hmm. candidate you could ever hope for, male and female people assessing the form would say, great, let's go for it, let's hire this person. However, the difference came if the candidate was average in how um, they were assessed. So um, when they asked males and females to judge this, there was no disparity in what men or women thought of the candidate, but the male was 70% likely to get hired and the female was 45% likely to get hired, despite Mm. the fact that the CV was identical. So even if there was a difference, for example... um, it would be located in our brain. There's a difference between the male and female brain, and this begins um, in as a fetus. So, I mean, originally, scientists believe that ability was directly proportional to brain size, and men actually have 12 to 20% larger brains at birth and have 10 to 12% larger brains when they're adults. However, what they later found 
And what we all know now is that brain size is not relevant to intelligence whatsoever. And in fact, in a recent study into children with IQs, uh, they actually found that the cerebral cortex, which is the outside wrinkly bit that controls higher thought, is actually thinner in children with higher IQs. So mm. nothing whatsoever to do with ability. Then they rethought about it and they thought, no, there still must be a difference because men really are so much smarter than women. So they decided uh, it must be in the corpus callosum, which is the bit that connects the two hemispheres of your brain. There's about 250 million nerve fibers connecting the two hemispheres. Um, and it was found that, uh, well, what it was proposed was, as late as the 90s, that it was wider in females than males. And it was proposed that this is why females can multitask and males are more single-task oriented. And then in a 1997 review paper, the fact that the female corpus callosum was larger was actually completely shut down, and it's actually larger in males so that also ended up being uh, not true. And at the moment, there is no evidence to suggest that gender difference between brain wiring is at all relevant to our abilities. Bars, the transgender professor at, uh, at Stanford, however, has some anecdotal experience after taking testosterone. He said what the main difference was in how other people treated him and he said that he could now get out an entire sentence without being interrupted by a male. He also claims that after he took testosterone, he lost the ability to cry easily. So apparently crying easily is controlled by testosterone. And he did IQ tests before and after um, going through his gender change. And his spatial abilities did improve after changing gender. Although he claims he still gets lost all the time while driving. What has changed, however, is that he is no longer willing to ask for directions. <laughs> yeah. oh, good old sample size of one. <laughs> now here we go, dropping science, dropping it all over. Like bumping around the town like when you're driving a Range Rover. Been dropping the new science. And I've been kicking the new knowledge. And I've seen to a degree that you can't get in college. It's the same. Of science, the sounds of science. Science. And finally, if you're going to be in Sydney this coming weekend, that's Friday the 21st and Saturday the 22nd of July, you might like to get along to Sydney Observatory for the second Festival of the Stars. The Festival of the Stars? What exactly is that? It's a weekend of tours, talks and stargazing held at Sydney Observatory and the best thing they're going to do is turn down the lights on the Sydney Harbour Bridge and in all the buildings around from 6pm till 10pm just they're so gonna, the stars are going to be no much more way. visible. They're going to turn down the lights on the Harbour Bridge? Yep. As in where the trains go across and everyone's driving? I think so, yeah. The pylons mostly, but <laughs> most of the lights on the Harbour Bridge are just decoration. They're just there for show. Oh, the are trains they? will be all right because they're on tracks. Oh, are they? Yeah, do they yeah. do they that now? Be, yeah, it's, it's modern <laughs> science. It's, it's pretty amazing. That is technology at its best. Yeah. But so, the best thing is going to be all those tall buildings as well, but the lights are left on. There's no. That'd be really cool just to go down and see it all dark around around Sydney Harbour. That's yeah. absolutely right, and you should get a much better view of the sky with all that without mm. all that light pollution. I yeah. don't remember uh, World War Two. In fact, I wasn't around then, but that's what they used to do back then: turn all the lights off. Yeah. So you know, the Japanese couldn't bomb us because they couldn't find us. Because they couldn't find us. Yeah. Well, there was no you know radar technology was. Well, to re-experience World War Two, go down to the Sydney Observatory. I think it's mostly about the science. But if you want to know some more, 
Get in touch with them on 9241-3767 or you can get to them at sydneyobservatory.com.au. You've been listening to Diffusion. This week you heard the voices of Mark West, Jackie Peffer, Jackie Hayes and me, David Harcourt. The show was produced by Jackie Hayes in the studios of 2SER in Sydney and broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. We also podcast to wherever you are. Look for us in iTunes or at feeds.feedburner.com forward slash Diffusion Radio. Right now you're listening to Bloom, who emailed us with this song from the UK. If you'd like us to feature your music on the show, send us an email at diffusion at 2ser.com. Otherwise, join us next week for more of the sort of science you can't live without. Been at the world. Gonna be big and success.